you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at several places in Isaiah, but we'll, we will start there. So we are three days away, people. Three days away from that new Lexus with a red bow on it for me. Maybe a Mercedes, I'm not sure. Apparently, I'm supposed to get my wife something from Jared. That's what I keep being told so she can Instagram it. Uh, uh, but every kiss begins with K, so there's a dilemma for me as to what I should do. Uh, I've heard, I can't remember who said this, um, but they, uh, some pastor, but he said, the most significant event in human history will be celebrated with or without understanding. But it will be celebrated. The most significant event in human history will be celebrated in three days with or without understanding. Now, I'm assuming that all of you are here because you want understanding. You actually want to know what it is we will be celebrating this Christmas. And of course, that's why we open up God's Word. Um, to seek understanding about Christmas, we typically we go to Matthew, we go to Luke. Um, we've got you know, Luke chapter one and two and Matthew chapter one and two. Those are the Christmas stories there where you'll hear about the angels, the choir of angels, the shepherds, the wise men, the finding Mary and Joseph there in the, in the stable and this baby lying in a manger. But what if you want more understanding than just those four chapters in the New Testament? Where do you go? Well, you got to go to the Old Testament. And it's there that things begin to get a little fuzzy for you. I mean, you know that somewhere out there, there is a prophecy about a star. You just, you're not really sure. Anybody know where the star prophecy is? Exactly. Numbers 24. Numbers 24. Usually you give up in your Bible reading plan about a month before that. Uh, but it's in Numbers 24 that you, you read about the star of Judah. And then you know that there is a minor prophet somewhere that talks about the Savior being born in Bethlehem. That's in Micah. And you're thinking, but where else? And you remember Isaiah. Isaiah, yes, during all the nine lessons and carol services, different Advent readings, uh, Isaiah is the prophet that we tend to go to around Christmas time. And, and sure enough, you go to Isaiah and you find those familiar passages like Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Or Isaiah 9, where you read how the people who have walked in darkness, they have seen a great light and that his name shall be called, you know, wonderful, uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Uh, and as long as you don't, you know, read the verses right before that or the verses right after that, you're okay because we like to read our Christmas passages in a vacuum because that's really the only way they make sense for us come Christmas. Um, but what we do is we've just kind of created this fuzzy mess around Isaiah and we don't really, really understand what it's talking about. Um, but if you want to know what Isaiah preaches about Christmas, and he has a lot to say about Christmas, you need to not start with the virgin shall be with child. You need to go back to the chapter before it in Isaiah 6. Um, and this is what I want us to unpack this morning. Isaiah 6. I'm going to start by just reading the first eight verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke and said, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the fire or from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. You would pray with me. Father, we pray that um, your word would come alive to us through the power of your spirit. You would write it on our hearts. We begin to understand um, the words that you spoke so long ago through your prophet Isaiah. Lord, may the prayers of our heart become Lord Jesus, both in this Christmas as we look back and as we look forward to the advent to come. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I know we're not supposed to do this, but if you were to choose favorite prophets, maybe, maybe make a Mount Rushmore of prophets. Isaiah would be on it. He'd have to be on it. He's widely considered the, the greatest of all of the prophets. I uh, don't have to take my word for it. Um, if you were to take all the times that he is quoted in the New Testament, uh, Isaiah is quoted more in the New Testament than all of the other prophets combined. So the New Testament writers were always looking back towards Isaiah. And the reason they do so is because the Spirit of God gave Isaiah such clarity concerning the Messiah, who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah was going to do. Uh, But we have to admit that as clear as that picture is, it's still a little fuzzy as we read through it. Uh, So confession, I'm, I'm a pastor which isn't the confession, but the, the confession is I, I, I'm a pastor who, who struggles with Isaiah. I, I really do. I struggle to understand Isaiah. So I went to Beeson Divinity School. I have my, have my master's in divinity, which means I should be able to master books like this. And I haven't. I'm, I'm often confused by Isaiah. So don't feel bad if when you read through these texts, you're a little confused as well because there's parts that I struggle to understand. Um, And this is with me. I spent 10 years of my life, 10 years every day reading a part of Isaiah. Um, And still, even after 10 years of of reading a little bit every day of Isaiah, there are parts I still really do not understand. But the reason I gave myself to doing that through Isaiah is because what I could understand was transforming. It's kind of like climbing Mount Everest, all right? Even if you don't make the top, 
every step you take, you get a better view. And that's how I felt when I was going through Isaiah. I might not ever reach the pinnacle of it, but with every step I took, I could see more and more of the glory of God. And it just kept propelling me to keep taking another step, taking another step. But one of the reasons that Isaiah is so hard to understand is, well, he lived 2,700 years ago, different time, different culture. And he didn't just sit down and write the book in one setting. This is a book written over his entire life. And so the first few chapters of Isaiah were written when he was likely, maybe, you know, perhaps in his 20s. Towards the end, it was when he was an old man. And he wrote and served during many administrations. He was a prophet to many kings, five different kings. And so this would be, just imagine this, if somebody who had served the administration of Trump, Obama, George W. Bush, Clinton, George H. Bush, somebody who had served all of them and then decided to write you one letter about it. About, I mean, how do you summarize all that's happened? Each person, each king is different. The situations are all different, but that's what we have in Isaiah. And it was written over the whole course of his life. And so it's confusing, but I'll say this. You get Isaiah 6. You understand Isaiah 6. The rest of it begins to come into focus. You really do get these glasses, these lenses in which you can really understand most of what's happening in this book. And that's why I want us to start with Isaiah 6, which is Isaiah's prophetical call into ministry. Once again, he's young. Um, and when he's young, he, the Lord gives him this terrifying vision, a vision of the glory of the Lord coming and filling the temple. And, and there's angels in there, and they're calling to one another about the holiness of God, and things are shaking, and there's smoke coming up. And Isaiah is absolutely terrified. His response to this vision is not praise. His response is he thinks he is coming undone because he becomes aware of his sins. Um, my wife and I, we've had a number of parties at our house this Christmas season, which means we've been cleaning up just pretty much nonstop. And uh, so I was cleaning up upstairs or cleaning up, I mean, just throwing things in the closet. And, uh, and I looked at, by my bed, there was just one shoe and uh, I couldn't find the other one. And so, you know, I, it's like, it must have got kicked under the bed. And so I went and I looked under the bed. I, I couldn't really see things. So I went and I got a flashlight and I, I shone it under the bed. And I was like, ah, I'm sleeping on top of all of this. I mean, it was, it was nothing but all of these, uh, a polite way of calling them as dust bunnies. But, but they were more than that. These, these I'd, I'd given life to something under there. And, uh, <laughs> but there were also a lot of dead bugs and things like that. That's what's happening with Isaiah. The glory of the Lord is coming and it's shining on him and it's exposing every sin. He thought everything was fine up until that. Now all he can see is he is completely covered with filth. And so he says, I'm lost. Or as I memorize this as a child, woe is me for I'm coming undone. I'm being torn apart as the, the glory of God shines on me. And so he needs one of two things to happen. The glory of God either needs to stop shining on him or he needs to be cleansed. And the Lord cleanses him. The Lord takes a coal, uh, one of the angels takes a coal and touches his lips and purifies him. And then says, your sins are forgiven or we read that his guilt's been taken away and that his sin has been atoned for. 
And then after the angel does this, we hear the Lord speak. And he says, whom shall I send? Who will go, go for us? And so apparently the Lord was doing all of this because he was raising up a messenger and he needed to get a message out to the people. And Isaiah, I mean, I guess he had a choice, but really, do you have a choice after seeing that and then being so radically cleansed? Isaiah says, here I am. Here I am. Send me. And this is Isaiah's calling into his prophetical ministry. And Isaiah's got to be so excited about this call because what this means is that God is finally about to do something. God's God's going to do something, and they're in desperate need. At this point in Israel's history, they're in desperate need for God to come and to intervene. The year 700 BC, which means it's been hundreds of years since King David was reigning and King Solomon had reigned, and they're way removed from that, and now they are a kingdom that is on the verge of collapse. Their northern neighbor, Assyria, a ruthless, brutal power, was breathing down their neck, conquering everybody around them, and now they are parked at the border of Israel. And it's only a matter of time before Israel is invaded. And the Assyrians were brutal people. Um, they would, you'd be lucky if you were killed uh, because they took away their prisoners. They had fish hooks and they would hook them through people's noses. And that's how they linked their captives together as they led you away. And night after night, the Israelites went to bed with a sense of impending doom upon them. It's, it's hard for me, hard for all of us really, to imagine what it would be like to live under that, every day living under that impending doom. I grew up as a child of the 70s and the 80s. Um, and for us, the closest we had to that was, you know, the threat of Russia, the threat of nuclear war. Um, we were also scared of communist Russia. Um, I actually remember, because this went on in the early 80s, um, I remember in our class um, being taught about what we should do should a nuclear missile attack happen. And for some reason, they thought if you duck and cover, that that would protect you, you know, or at least they were just trying to give you something to do. Um, but we watched videos about this. Um, this is the early 80s. In 1983, uh, for those of you who remember this, remember the movie that came out the day after? Um, in which uh, it was all about the day after Russia sent their nuclear missiles to destroy the U.S., what it would look like. And it wasn't released in the theaters because they wanted a wide audience, both adults and their children, to watch this. And over 100 million Americans watched it, me being one of them. And I remember the, the parental advisory before it. And it was a terrifying film. Uh, but, but even after watching that, more people watched that than watched the Super Bowl. Still, Russia was so far away. I mean, they're an ocean way. It's, just, it's not really this impending doom. But Israel, they could smell the campfires of Assyria. At night, if they listened hard, hard enough, they could probably hear the army's voices coming over the mountain. The threat was real and it was imminent. And every night they'd go to bed thinking, is this it? Will tomorrow they invade? And so this is the threat that's happening at this time. And so Isaiah is thinking, finally, God is raising a prophet. Finally, God is intervening. He's going to deliver Israel. This is what he's got to be thinking at this time. And then the Lord tells Isaiah what he's supposed to say. 
Look at verse 9. Isaiah, or the Lord tells Isaiah, he says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Okay. Not what Isaiah is expecting, all right? This is not what he's expecting at this point. God is literally raising him up to be a prophet that no one listens to, all right? It's kind of like preaching at the 9 a.m. service this morning, okay? (laughs) It took a while for people to to wake up. Isaiah is confused. It It doesn't make sense to him. He's like, oh, all right. So he asks the question, for how long? For how long? In other words, okay, God, uh, you have a mysterious way of doing things, okay, so the people won't listen at first, but then you're going to turn their hearts around, and then they're going to listen to you, and then you're going to come and deliver us, right? That's going to happen. That's what Isaiah is expecting, and he's thinking, so how long are we talking here? The Lord's answer, verse 11, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in the stump. It would be hard to overstate the shock that Isaiah would have felt upon hearing these words. Because the one thing he would have been certain of, that all of Israel had been certain of, is that God rescues. That's kind of what God does to Israel. He rescues. It's in their DNA. I mean, Things get bad. God comes in, saves them. He always rescues them. Isaiah would have grown up hearing all of the stories, the stories about the battles won, the stories about Moses taking on Pharaoh and winning, or about Joshua in the battle of Jericho, and now the walls came crumbling down, or about a boy fighting a giant with nothing more than a sling and winning, or Elisha and Dothan when he's surrounded by the enemy. God sends angelic armies with chariots of fire to protect him. I mean, often it was when Israel was hanging on by a thread, when the hour was at its darkest, God then stepped in, but he always delivered. But this time, God says, I'm not. I'm going to let it burn. He's going to let the cities of Israel be leveled The people who are not killed, he's going to let them be taken off as prisoners in exile. And even the remnants of the cities that do remain, he says, though a tenth remain, those are going to be burned. I mean, what he is talking about here is total devastation, annihilation. God is going to use Assyria to judge the people of Israel. No escape, no last-minute rescue. 
everything burned to the ground. Not the message you want to hear when you're being called into prophetical ministry. Poor Isaiah. So what is God doing here? I mean, what is he trying to teach? Both Isaiah trying to teach Israel, teaching us. First, he's teaching us that he will judge sin. Sin will be judged. Even though God had been so gracious to Israel in the past, been so kind to them in the past, delivered them so many times in the past, their response to it had not been trust and obedience. It had been infidelity. Israel for hundreds of years had been continually unfaithful. And God finally has said, enough, you will be punished. Second thing God's teaching them, teaching us, is that we are actually the problem. We are the problem. We are not the solution to the problem. Our sins are desperately sick and we are wicked. And we cannot be a light to the world or rescue this world. Now, this seems to present to Isaiah, to the people there, it seems to present a big problem. Because how exactly is God going to use Abraham to bless the entire world? Remember, God had made some pretty big promises. He promised that the entire world would be blessed through Abraham. But how can that happen when History has repeatedly shown that every one of Abraham's descendants are part of the problem and not part of the solution. Mere humans cannot fix this world. They can only break it. That's the pattern we see over and over and over. Uh, Going back to the 80s, I am a child of the 80s. Uh, Frank Rizzo, he was was the mayor in Philadelphia. People absolutely loved him because there was not a politically correct bone in his body. Uh, he couldn't last today, maybe. But uh, anyway, he was, he was being interviewed one time. And somebody said, so what are you going to do about street crime? And he goes, streets don't commit crimes. People do. Next question. <laughs> and I love that. Streets don't commit crime. People do. Next question. But we tend to always point to like something else besides us as the issue. And so we talk about things like bad government, but there's no such thing as bad government. There's bad people in the government. There's no such thing as bad neighborhoods. There's bad people in the neighborhoods. People are the problem. Wouldn't you love to one day just see a, you know, a protest maybe happen at the National Mall, millions of people gathered together, all holding signs saying, I am the problem? Like... Wouldn't you love like, if we actually became that self-aware that, that, that we all are the problem? But we don't do that because what we do is we ignore our own sins and we just, we just point to everyone else and blame everyone else. But we're part of the problem, not part of the solution. So the question is this, how is it that God is going to bless the entire world through a descendant of Eve or through a descendant of Abraham, when every single descendant so far has proven to be a sinner and part of the problem. How can sinners bless this world? Parents, you have a hard time even blessing your children. I mean, you feel this all the time. I mean, parents want to bless their kids. Any good parent wants to bless their children. Um, but often it, it, it backfires. 
I mean, we try to bless our kids we, by taking them on trips, you know, taking care of them, buying them clothes, giving them gifts. But sometimes we, it, those things provide the exact opposite of a blessing. Instead of producing kindness in them, thankfulness in them, haven't you parents at times just seen a sense of entitlement or how you've fed selfishness instead? I mean, besides just thinking about Christmas, easy example there, but just, just think about you know, dinner, and a nightly occurrence. If you happen to, you know, you make a meal and your child happens to eat it, sometimes after they eat it, then they demand ice cream. Why? Because they're entitled to it. I did it. I ate. Give me ice cream. And you're like, there's no kindness. All right. This is from you who love your children. You want to do nothing more than to bless your children. But sometimes it just backfires because you can't change their hearts. Your heart is full of sin. Their heart is full of sin. There's no way you can actually really bless them unless you could deal with their sin and change their hearts. So what's going to happen? I mean, if the problem is our hearts, then, then, then how can God possibly bless the world through sinful man? Is there any hope? And God says, yes, just this one little seed of hope, if you will. We read that at the very end of verse 13. When he says, though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in the stump. The picture here is of total devastation. An army has come through, has burned everything to the ground, chopped everything down, and the only thing that is left, all the trees, of course, have been leveled, is the images of this one tree stump. It's just a stump. It's been cut down, and then it's been set on fire. And so it's this charred stump there. And God says, I want you to look at that. Look at that. There's a holy seed in there. Don't give up hope. There's one little seed of hope that's going to come from all of this. And so what is going to happen from this point on, from this point forward in Israel's history, God is essentially causing them to start over because like Abraham before them, the only thing they will have from this point moving forward is God and his promise. Land's going to be taken away. Material blessings taken away. Freedoms taken away. The only thing that they are going to have is their God and his promise. Nothing that they feel says God is around here. Nothing that they see here says God is for them. All they see is devastation, but they have God and they have his promise. And the question is, is that enough? They're starting over just like Abram. That's all Abraham had. God and his promise. Some of you can relate to this, in which there is nothing currently happening in your life right now in which you can see any bit of hope at all. Perhaps you're single. Um, you're single and you actually feel a profound loneliness. You wish it was not so. You've tried to preach it away in your life. But honestly, you feel very lonely. Perhaps you're married and all you want is out. 
You just want to get out of that relationship that you see as so toxic. Perhaps your health has completely failed you or you're in financial ruin. There's nothing. There's nothing you can see. There's nothing that you can feel that says that God is for you. But all you have is your belief in God and his promise that you do have a glorious future. We all do who have trusted Christ. Is this enough for you? Do you know what's going to happen to God's people now from this point on? After God burns it all to the ground and he says we're going to start over, this is what happens to the people. They begin to cry out, Messiah. Messiah, come. Messiah, come and save us. We cannot save ourselves. We've tried. We've tried. Messiah, Come. The people begin to cry out over and over that God would raise up a Messiah. It's from this point on that God actually begins raising up prophets that point forward to the Messiah. The messianic titles that will be given to this Messiah, you, you recognize the, the branch or the shoot of Jesse. All of that stems from here, from that charred stump. Something's going to spring forth this new life. But the prayers from this point on are, come, Messiah, come, we cannot save ourselves. Come, Messiah, come, we cannot bless ourselves. Come, Messiah, come, we can't change ourselves. Come, Messiah, come. Now, of course, after this, Isaiah still had a lot of questions. Yes, God promised he was going to spring up from that charred stump, some holy seed. But he had questions like, how do we know you're really going to do this? And how would we recognize this Messiah when he comes? Can you give us a sign? And still there's the issue of, but he's going to be a human and we're the problem. So how can even this, this, this human, this, this, this shoot that springs up, how can that person actually really save us? These are the questions that are going on in there. Isaiah's thinking if Abraham couldn't save us, if Moses couldn't save us, if David couldn't save us, how could any future king or Messiah save us? And this is when we get to the Christmas passages in Isaiah. This all lays the ground, the foundation. This is the fertile soil for now which Christmas begins to spring forward. So this is the backdrop of all those prophecies you know and you've come to love. This way gets so good. Chapter 7. God begins to answer these questions. Verse 14, God's saying, okay, you want a sign? Here's your sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Lord tells us, this is how you're going to know who the Messiah is. Well, he's going to be born of a virgin, which means that this isn't going to be just a mere child. It's going to be a supernatural child. And his name is going to be called Emmanuel because I have not forsaken you. I know there's total devastation all around you, but I have not forsaken you. I will be with you. Then we come to Isaiah 9. In Isaiah chapter 9. There's so much I want to go here. We just don't have the time. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So this land of Zebulon and Naphtali, that's, that's Galilee. Galilee is the place that's about to be leveled by the Assyrians. The place that's about to come under total destruction. It's also the place where Jesus would live and grow up. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Uh, from that point in Isaiah, moving forward in, in Israel's history, Galilee would be a dark, dark place. It's, it's by, you know, the Mediterranean Sea there. Um, you've, you've got, you know, the, the Sea of Galilee also there, but nobody was vacationing there for the next few hundred years because it was nothing but army after army after army coming through it, destroying everything. It would be a dark, dark place, which is why you have in verses three through five there, all of this imagery of, of battle and, and garments soaked in blood. God says, I know this has been the darkest of dark places, Israel, but light is coming. Jesus is coming. Light is coming. Verse six, there's that child again. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This child is going to be their king. We're going to read that the government is going to rest upon his shoulders. And then the Lord begins to now answer the question, how this king will save us when all the other kings failed. We read things like this. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Meaning this, this king won't need advisors. This king won't need counselors. Those are the most important positions for a king, is to have very wise counselors. He's saying, this king won't need it, because all of his counsel will be wondrous. And then we read, his name will also be called Mighty God. And hear me, people, this is when the penny drops. Right there at mighty God. This is the first time in prophetic literature that we realize that the Savior, the heir to David's throne, will not be a mere man. He will be both human and he will be mighty God. Uh, Jewish scholars to this day, they... they they struggle interpreting this. Um, I actually went through a number of Jewish commentaries. And whenever they get to this, they're like, it certainly sounds like that this messianic figure is being called mighty God. It's like, it's because he is being called mighty God. He's human, but he's more than a human. This is God come to be with us in the flesh. Well, this might be how he saves us. He's also our everlasting father, meaning you'll be adopted as his child into his family. And although parents, we struggle to bless our kids, this father will bless us. And he is the prince of peace. This Messiah is going to end all war. And he's going to usher in a new time of peace that will never, ever end Verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
If we had time, we'd walk through the rest of Isaiah and you could go through Isaiah 11, where once again, you have this shoot coming forth from the stump of David. And it tells you about the messianic figure here. And it says that the spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him. It's one of the first things we see about Jesus in Luke chapter four. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. And he is one who is going to rule with wisdom. Actually, says in Isaiah 11, he's not going to judge by what he sees. And you're like, what? Because isn't that how you're supposed to judge? (laughs) Not this one. Because he can see in the hearts. And then Isaiah begins to go on throughout his magnificent letter about how this Messiah will actually deliver us from our evil hearts and from our sin. And he gets Isaiah 55 and he says, this Messiah is going to take on our suffering, is going to take on our sin. And he's going to die on our behalf. Now, these things that Isaiah prophesied, many of them came true that first Advent, which is why we celebrate Christmas. We look at Jesus's birth. And sure enough, through Jesus's birth and as he grew up through his life, death and resurrection, we actually do have forgiveness. We have new life. We have the gift of his spirit. These things have broken in but yet we still join with Isaiah and the rest of Israel in our prayers, which is come Messiah, come, because we are waiting for that second advent. Come Messiah, come. Come and bring your shalom in this world. Your light has broken through, but let it come in full. And so as we go and we celebrate this Christmas, yes, we look back to the birth of that baby lying in a manger. And we thank God that God, Emmanuel, did break in. But then we also look forward and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we join with all the saints throughout history in this one prayer. Come, Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Earth is ready to receive you as king. Come. Lord, I ask that this Christmas through your spirit, you would allow us to embrace its wonder, that we would look back and we would have an incredible wonder in our hearts and a thankfulness for you coming and shining light in a dark place. And then, Lord, we also look forward with hope and expectation, knowing that you will come again. Thank you. We pray this all in your sweet name, Jesus. Amen.